And I remember my son, Josh, please, we give me the microphone. And I'm thinking, oh, do I, <laughs> do I give him the mic? And he marched across the platform saying, um, no more Gunchester. We declare in the name of Jesus that violent crime is going to drop. We will no longer be known as City of Violence. And six months later, headlines in the Manchester Evening News, the actual headline said, is this the end of Gunchester? Wow. Violent crime has dropped by 37% in the last six months since yes. our event. Welcome, everybody. This is Simon Gilbo with Inspired. It's great to be back with you guys. Basically, Inspired is all about uh, telling stirring, uh, edifying, encouraging stories of faith coming from friends of mine from different walks of life. And uh, as we get bombarded with relentlessly negative stuff in the media, it's good to have our spirits lifted. So I'm, I'm trusting that in 45, well, I know that in 45 minutes, uh, you or whatever, however long we, we do this for, uh, you will be massively encouraged because I've got a fantastic lady with me today. Welcome, Deborah Green. Hi. So great to have you, Deborah. Um, our, our paths first crossed, we were trying to work it out, maybe at about 2008. Mm. We were at uh, Detling when Eric Delve got you to run the, the youth work with the message. And I was the sort of youth speaker in that venue for the week. And so we, that's when we first connected. And since then, you've the Lord's used you in beautiful ways. Um, you're the founder of Redeeming Our Communities. You've done, done loads of citywide stuff in Manchester. Basically, I, I don't want to do, say any more about intro because I just want to get in there and hear your story because I know we've got a lot to pack in. So tell us, first of all, you know, background, faith journey, how you came to faith. Go for it. Yeah, sure. So I came to faith in 1980 and it was about six months after I'd, I'd got married. Um, mm -hmm. And it's quite an interesting story because I'd probably been searching for something that I felt was missing in my life um, in my late teens. And although I'd been to church as a child, uh, my parents had backslidden and I hadn't really got any real faith, any living faith at all, mm -hmm. and experimenting with things that young people often do. Yeah. Um, and then I got married to Frank, and it was actually on our wedding day that I had an encounter with God. Oh, wow. So um, we decided to get married in a church because both of us had kind of past associations with the church, but not not living faith but we wanted to get married in the church and during the wedding ceremony we were singing the 23rd psalm the lord's my shepherd which was one song that we'd remembered from when we were asked to choose hymns for the service mm -hmm. it was the one hymn we could actually remember between the two of us and um, as we were singing it it was just well what i now know to be the presence of god a supernatural presence surrounded me in that um, standing at the altar there in the church and I knew that something very significant was happening but I didn't really know whether it was visible to anybody else or whether it was just myself so on the way to reception I asked Frank did you experience anything in the service <laughs> trying not to give too much away yeah and he said yes it was like it was like sort of God um was wow. there turned up present and he'd obviously experienced the same as me and then we got talking about it and it was probably six months after that that I gave my life to Christ it was just such a 
you know, you could not deny that that was a powerful encounter that God had broken into my life. Probably in answer to the prayers that I'd been praying, I'm searching for something. I know, I know there's something more than this, more to life than this. And um, we went to live with my parents and my parents were, as I said, backslidden. And my dad just suddenly, around about four to five months after we'd, we'd got married, my dad suddenly decided he wanted to find out if... Um, you know, God was still real, as it were, and got in his car one Sunday and went out to look for a church, found a church, went in there, re recommitted his life to Christ, Brilliant. came home completely different, completely transformed, a different person, you know, face shining, absolutely incredible. And I, because we were living there, I saw that. So I went with him the following week and... It was one of those experiences where I felt like the the preacher was speaking just just to me. Yeah, the appeal was given, and I immediately gave my life to Christ. Wow! And what were you doing at the time, job wise? That sort of thing. I trained to be a school teacher, so I just started teaching. Um, I used to teach English and drama. I had just embarked on that really as as a young married woman and Frank then was another story because he was now found himself to be married to a Christian who was rather <laughs> enthusiastic about her faith <laughs> and felt like he actually told me um, a, a, some months later that he felt like um, I was with another man <laughs> which is actually Jesus my you know I'd become more interested in him than Frank felt than in than in my husband so yeah. that was quite an interesting time and bit of um I, I can't say it was an easy time because there was a, a battle going on really with his life mm -hmm. and in the end he also committed his life to Christ about three months later three months after me and then the following year we both got called into the ministry so it was it was very quick when yeah. that happened that way. Brilliant. So when you say called in the ministry, what was the next step? Well, we were at um, Filey Week, which was a Christian holiday week in the north of England, and we'd both gone to different meetings that particular evening where there was some reference to um, full-time Christian work. Is this something that you feel is for you and we both responded to that went back afterwards and shared notes and we both responded on the same evening Brilliant. so yeah we, frank then went to study at the nazarene theological college in didsbury for a short time but then ended up going to study theology at manchester university i started to work with him leading the youth group at altering and baptist church and yeah, we both went forward into sort of church leadership roles for 20 odd years. Mm. Um, key, key moments in that, go for it. Blank slate, just share the, the beautiful stuff. Um, I, think, I think a really key moment is around being a woman called into ministry in the 1980s. People might not be able to remember that far back, but actually women in leadership was quite rare. Mm -hmm. There were very few role models, very few examples you could look to. 
Um, so it was quite lonely. And I think a number of breakthrough moments happened whereby I was having to pioneer, I suppose, um, for the sake of other women coming after me and now having two daughters and three granddaughters, I realised the importance of seeing what God can do through you, regardless of gender and regardless of social class and regardless of experience, training. God can use people. And I'd see that even though there was opposition to my the concept of my being a leader, um, there was many times where God really used me in a powerful way. Mm. So very much not just to do with local church leadership, but I received a vision from the Lord to set up um, a network in, in Greater Manchester of churches working together for transformation in the city. It was called Prayer Network. I led that, I pioneered that, founded it, led it for seven years to the extent that we had, you know, 500 churches of different denominations and streams praying together. Brilliant. For the city between, the, between 1993 and the year 2000, which was the precursor to things like Message 2000, which you will remember, Festival Manchester, the first one in 2003. Churches working together in unity and me leading that was really significant and I think by the grace of God you know he used me despite me being a woman <laughs> according <laughs> so, to some people's yeah. theology <laughs> yeah so was it was it really contested oh yeah yeah uh, I don't I think to be fair to people people held that theological view and they and they still do to some extent that it's not permitted for a woman to speak in the church. It's not permitted for a woman to lead. You can draw some, you know, biblical evidence to support that theology. Um, it's not how I would interpret those verses, but there are some, there are some people who hold that very, very you know, very strongly. But I, I think it's to be fair to them is because they hadn't had these role models. You know, people couldn't point to significant female leaders to to draw from. Yeah. So yeah, I had people writing to me saying that my gifting was not from God mm. and I should not be in any kind of leadership role, that God wouldn't bless it, that's you know I was I was dis disobedient, all sorts of different things. And I suppose in a way that was the minority of people. There were all other people who were cheering me on as well. But you know, there was opposition. Yeah. So you mobilized <clears throat> five hundred plus churches, thousands mm -hmm. of people, individuals, and and uh, and the transformation in Manchester and it was undeniable, wasn't it? The police recognized it. I mean, sh yeah. share all that stuff. Well, we had a nickname back in the day, and our nickname for Manchester was Gunchester. Right. Uh, because of the gang violence in places like Moss Side, um, the, the crime statistics, it was, it was a dark place to live in many ways, and pockets of, massive pockets of deprivation, massive darkness around people carrying knives, um, manly guns back in those days, or weapons of destruction, and drugs and alcohol and, you know, people living in darkness and not safe, not a safe place to walk around. 
and walk about many of the streets of Manchester. So we had this nickname, Gunchester, and I remember us being at the Velodrome. And this was around um, 2008 as well. We hired the Velodrome, which is the cycling dome opposite the Etihad, Manchester City Etihad Stadium. And it was where the Olympic cyclists were training and we hired it and we had about 5,000 people in there with nine chief constables from different parts of the UK. We had leaders of councils, civic dignitaries, politicians, plus the church. And the BBC headline was thousands of people praying against um, gang violence in in the city of Manchester. Mm -hmm. People have come together to pray and act on their prayers to reduce crime, reduce violent crime in the city. And I remember my son, Josh, had just recently come back to the Lord and he came onto the platform, side of the platform, said to me, Mum, please, can I pray? Please, will you give me the microphone? And I'm thinking, oh, do I? Do I? <laughs> do I give him the mic? I don't know what really what he's going to say. I've got all these secular people in the audience. 40% of the audience are not, not from a faith background civic dignitaries and and he just grabbed the mic i gave him the mic and he marched across the platform saying um, no more gunchester we declare in the name of jesus that violent crime is going to drop our reputation is going to be turned around and we will no longer be known as a city of violence and prayed this really uh, you know young people will be safe on the streets all of this stuff really faith stirring stuff and six months later, headlines in the Manchester Evening News, the actual headline said, is this the end of Gunchester? Wow. Violent crime has dropped by 37% in the last six months since yes. our event, since Josh prayed that prayer. And, and I got a meeting. We had a new chief constable, Sir Peter Farhi. I got a meeting with him as a direct result of that. Um because I think the police were beginning to realise that, you know, there are more factors to crime, shall we say, than just, um, you know, people choosing to live that kind of way. There are factors which lead up to those kind of choices. Um, you know, the way society is made up, educational inequalities, we know how health inequalities, um, people who have not been given those chances in life. We know from the police that a child who's excluded from school is 200 uh, percent times more likely to join a gang. Yeah. Um, we know all these factors now to play. And I think the big police were beginning to wake up and say, actually, a partnership with the church, a partnership with other significant organisations in a city is relevant to what we do. The police cannot solve all the problems on their own. Um, there just isn't enough of them and society has to stand on its feet and every person has to take responsibility. So I think we were tapping, tapping into all of that, really. But yeah, the... The crime rates were significantly affected, I think, by prayer, but also by people working together and looking at various solutions that ordinary people can be part of looking after their neighbourhood, you know, caring for your neighbours. The whole principle in the Bible of, of being a good neighbour, lo loving our neighbours, is actually crime reducing. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I don't think we'd realise the significance of that. Yeah. I um, One of my absolute ministry heart mantras is uh, everything is relationship. And, uh, you know, together we can do more. Uh, and you're obviously brilliant at just drawing people together. It, it's critical, isn't it? Yeah, together we can't, we, I honestly think that we have, one of the problems we have in society, and there are many problems, is the fact that we are all in, in our own, own silos. So the police work in their silo, they have their culture, their language, their way of doing things. Um, have to say, and it might be a bit controversial, that I also think the church is, has a, it, we're often in a silo with our own language and our walls that protect us from the great outdoors and the outside world that might influence us in some way. And I, I do feel like because we're all working in our different areas, um, separately that we are not really working effectively as we would if we were if we were to come together yeah yeah absolutely i mean i can't i can't always hesitate to even go into the story but in 2015 in burundi and the war sort of kicked off again and and we just got across society we got people that the key movers and shakers together and started mm. a thing called christian initiatives for peace and yeah. uh, everyone had gone to ground it was scary they're burning barricades we we're like we and we had the holiest meeting of my life where we got people around the table and we had met that was the strength of our great lakes outreach network is that we had met every month for a prayer breakfast we'd been away on, on retreats spousal retreats uh, and so we knew each other we loved each other in a, in a low trust almost zero trust culture and we said are you willing to die our nation is going to the dogs right now are we willing to this will be costly but we've got to stand up and do stuff and across media and and politics and business and church we just got it was absolutely beautiful but it, it was dangerous um yes but it but uh, yeah everything is relationship so so good what you what you what you got together there and um would would the secular authorities recognize the the, the church's role not initially but you have to start somewhere and i think going back to those early days that was probably the significant first step mm -hmm. uh, to breaking down the barriers between um, secular authorities and the sort of sec sacred secular divide, yeah. as it were. It is all about relationships. You know, people, I remember the chief constable saying to me, um, one of the chief constables saying to me, Matt, I need you to meet with one of my assistants chief constables but the the chief constable i was speaking to had had faith was a person of faith and the assistant is an atheist and he doesn't want to meet you he said he said he's absolutely categorically said to me i don't want to meet her because she i know she's a christian i know she's going to try and convert me <laughs> and he said well i'd like you to meet her. We, we ended up meeting and we ended up having very significant conversation but I do think that in the absence of relationship, people have, you know, perception. Yeah. And perception that the secular authorities have toward the church is not great. Mm. You know, they they have a whole host of views about us, which, um, you know, are based on their understanding without having that relationship. They mm. don't know that were any different from that. And I was able to share with this person 
for example, this person was an atheist and had been very disillusioned by the church in his younger life around the issue of us, um, you know, having expensive temples and cathedrals and and, and money and not really caring about, because he was a socialist and he not really caring about society's poor. Mm. And of course, I was able to say, well, have you not heard of the Salvation Army? Have you not heard about the work of, you know, the d- people like the Message Trust and the Eden Projects and people have actually moved into the into the inner cities and, and yep. lived amongst people and, you know, people like yourself who've done incredible things. I was able to share those stories with him and it was his perception which was not seeing the full picture as it were Mm. and I feel as though one of the things that we've done with with redeeming our communities is try to break down those barriers and try to form relationships around what do we want to see in terms of societal transformation so we have this phrase people of goodwill working together towards safer kind of communities. Now, people of goodwill are people of faith and not necessarily, and and people who don't necessarily have faith yet, but they're good people who want to see society change. And as we work together on those missions, as it were, we're giving those people a chance to be part of that transformation and to contribute to the transformation, actually. Yeah, yeah. Hi folks, this podcast comes out under the auspices of Great Lakes Outreach and over the next few weeks, over the Easter season, we're doing an appeal for a fantastic project. We are building a pastor's retirement village in Karuzi in Burundi, basically. They are often these pastors left on the scrap heap of life, having given their everything for decades. There's no social security, there's no pension system in Burundi. And unless their family take care of them, they can end up absolutely destitute, hungry, and even regretting that they gave their life to ministry. That is so wrong. And so we are looking at buying 17 and a half hectares of land, which means that the whole project will be self-sustaining. Uh, for £25 or $30, you could buy 100 square metres. And that is a gift that will keep on giving for decades to come as every harvest season, fresh crops will be grown and provide for these precious people that gave their whole lives to ministry. It's a brilliant project. I'd love you to be a part of it. Just £25 for, for or $30 for 100 square metres or more. Uh, go to greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash pastors. That's greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash pastors so that we can honour those who honoured him. I was young and now I'm old, yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken or with their children begging bread. That's what we want to be contributing to. Great idea, brilliant vision. It's going to happen. Do you want to be a part of it? Please do. All right, let's get back to the podcast. So um, I just, I'm thinking of your book, City Changing Prayer, which mm-hmm. was, uh, was published in 2005-ish. Um, now, mm-hmm. that, what, just give me your best, your best stories of, you know, seeing, seeing because oh, you got the statistic, 37% down, which is stunning. But uh, can mm-hmm. you give us a, any, any story that comes to mind of you like, Lord, just so clearly moved? Well, there is another one also connected with the velodrome. Um, and it was when we had the Commonwealth Games in Manchester in the early 20s. Mm-hmm. And again, I was on a roll and I said, I'm going to hire the velodrome again. So, because I got, I got to know the general manager and he was very 
open to working with us. And we got, again, around 5,000 people attending a big gathering to pray for the Commonwealth Games. And we were praying for things like, you know, good weather, <laughs> safety of the athletes, and the hosting. We got Christian families across the city who were hosting the families of the people who were going to be competing in the Olympic Games. And I interviewed the chief executive of the Commonwealth Games who came to the event at the velodrome, Frances Stone, and I was asking her about how we could pray and how we could support the initiative. And um, we had a fantastic evening. You know, lots of really good things happened. It was very positive. Went home. A couple of days later, I get a phone call from... Francis Stone's office saying Francis was really impressed with the event. She wants to know if you can find her 500 Christians who can come and sing at the opening ceremony Beautiful. of the Commonwealth Games yeah. with Russell Watson. Fantastic. So I said, yes. Uh, I'm kind of just, you know, always say yes and then try and work out how to do it afterwards. <laughs> Put the phone down and... Mosburn was there, Frank, and he was saying, "Well, how are you going to do? You know what? It was the it was before the days of where you had massive, you know, WhatsApp groups and yeah. email, you know, communications and that sort of thing. So I just went to all our networks and said, "We need five hundred people to sing with Russell Watson." And before about two weeks were up, we had 800 people wanting to be part of this choir. So I told auditions to find the best people. And of course, they were able to go into the, um, you know, the Commonwealth Games and sing. And they're not just there singing, they're there, you know, on a mission to dedicate that place to the Lord, you know, because it was the first, very first time it was ever used as a, as a stadium, newly built stadium. And I often say as a joke when I'm speaking, that's why Manchester City Football Club are doing so well. <laughs> so we have those 500 Christians in there praying. But yeah, it, it was all about just doing faithfully what you do and the doors that then God begins to open. Um, you, you know, we've, we've just seen incredible things happen through United Prayer. Mm. And the whole the whole um, prayer for the police, the whole of redeeming our communities came out of those seven years of prayer because part of that we prayed for the police. And I remember interviewing a police officer in 1998, Stephen Oak. This story is also in the book. He was um, a Christian from Poynton Baptist Church and he shared with us you know, I said, what is it like to be a police officer? Tell us some things we can pray for. That was the kind of style of our prayer meetings. And he talked about his job and there wasn't a dry eye in the place mm. because of some of the stories he told us. And people then, the church started to get a heart for praying for the police, praying about crime, praying about, you know, society's most vul vulnerable people and the victims of crime as well, of course. And anyway... Three years later, he was the victim of a terrorist attack in Crumpsall. Right. He literally stood in a doorway to protect his colleagues and lost his own life as a result. Oh. And it was, you know, incredibly sad. And he 
you know, is a married man with 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 teenage children at the time. He literally laid down his life for his friends. But the thing is, many of the police across Greater Manchester knew that he was a Christian. Yeah. Because he was very open about his faith. And they used to say to him that they, you know, the joke would be that it was a bit of a crutch. Why do you need God? You know, why can't you just stand on your own two feet? But of course, when he did what he did, he was then, they began to see actually that he his faith was something that made that act of sacrifice possible and yeah. the glory goes to God. And five alpha courses were started in police stations. Wow. So and good. Everybody came to his funeral. Um, Tony and Cherie Blair were there. It was a very high profile uh, thing. And all these stories were told and retold. And I, I actually believe that is one of the turning points as well. The church realising that we need to pray um, for people who are on the front line, as it were, uh, like we, we 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 have to pray for our NHS, we have to pray for our teachers, we need to pray for our police officers because they are holding society up, as it were. Yeah. And we are busy in the church, you know, completely oblivious of all this stuff half the time. Yeah, yeah. So it was a big turning point for us. Um, to see all these different amazing things happen. Mm. And even through sacrifice, many, many officers came to Christ. I've led many police officers to Christ myself over the years. Um, and police officers are very touched when you tell them those those stories. Yeah. Oh, Deborah, that's beautiful. Um so you, I think you started redeeming our communities back in about two thousand four. Was that? Mm -hmm. Was that? Was there the back of Festival of Manchester? Was it? Was it just a natural morphing of of what you're up to? Probably. I mean, people people kept kept coming to me during Festival Manchester because I'd been the one to bring the churches together and saying, "What are you going to do next?" And the thing that was quite significant was a lot of other cities. Uh, came to Festival Manchester, a lot of people from across, you know, the UK and beyond wanted to see that festival because it was one of the first of its type. Um, and they wanted to go back to their places and do similar kinds of, um, you know, festivals or smaller versions of what, we, what we'd done. And people were saying, what are you going to do next? And can you help us in some way? So... Uh, redeeming our communities was born from the idea of um, supporting people in their community to be to be salt and light in their community and bring redemption. Yeah. Uh, and then you know I was like, oh, it'll just be for the northwest of England. You know, I wasn't really thinking of it being national or international. But then in two thousand and six, we we went in we went national at the NEC in Birmingham and 7000 people came wow. so it was it was just an incredible event and people were really starting to join up the dots that we have to work together and our faith is meant to have you know a transformational impact it, it has to show up in statistics in society yeah. effectively 
possibly it has to it has to make people's lives better um on the streets and in people's homes it can't just be about what we're experiencing in in our church so i saw redeeming our communities grow and we've got about 350 projects now across the uk We've just joined forces with an organisation called Street Angels, Uh a bit like Street Pastors, Festival Angels, that go to the big Leeds Festival, Reading Festival, Glastonbury Festival, all the different festivals to look after the kids there, you know, um, and just be pastors on site, basically. Um, So, yeah, we've, we've grown and expanded in the last couple of years and working together with different more you know organizations who are compatible with what we do and it's all about bringing that transformation mm. so you're awarded um, an ob in 2012 now that's mm-hmm. that's that's just great isn't it when you, it's recognition in the secular space for, for for someone doing god's work I just, I, I just love that and i'm sure that's that's been helpful you've written a couple of books on those stories Re- redeeming our communities 21st century miracles of social transformation and rock your world transforming communities for good you talked about those 350 projects have you have you got a favorite have you got one that you know just because the story is so good I've got so many favourites, really. Sure, I think sure. I think one would definitely be seeing seeing what God has done in Northern Ireland because mm. when I first went to Northern Ireland, I was told categorically that we would never start redeeming our communities in Northern Ireland because there's so many factors. For example, people don't like the police. When I'm saying they don't like the police in Northern Ireland, it goes to the extent of they won't even serve them in a shop if they go in to buy a pack of coffee or something, they won't serve you. Um, And then there is also the huge divides in terms of religion as well. And those that that kind of backdrop meant that it would be very difficult. And we did. We we got we worked with Sir Matt Baggett, who I'd come to know when he was chief constable in Leicester. He then got transferred to Northern Ireland and then the first call he made was to me saying can you come and launch rock in uh, Northern Ireland um, he was also told it wouldn't, wouldn't happen but we had two and a half thousand people at the waterfront arena in in, in um, 2012 we launched rock there and it's still going strong now so seeing something that was probably quite impossible to do to see it happening now and to see people working together and police working with us and with the community has been really, really rewarding. So I think that's probably, yeah, the most difficult task we had and the most rewarding one. Mm. Worked in some of the really tough places. Well, West Belfast, which we had, we were told we would need body armour when we went in to do the <laughs> event there. Um, you probably relate to yeah, this love stuff, that. Actually, Simon. <laughs> and, you know, there's known terrorists coming to your meeting and you've got police officers there as well. So that could make for quite a bit of trouble. But that's sort of so amazing to see how how God has been working through those different projects. And, and how sort of explicit is the Christian faith in all that? It's... I would say, and I've written quite a bit about this in in Rock Your World around, I don't know whether people are probably familiar with the Engels scale. Yeah. Um, and 
most um, people who are kind of working on missional projects uh, are trying to reach people who are, you know, minus one, minus two, minus three, Engel scale. So they're, they're, they're ready, if you like, for a conversation. Mm-hmm. We are trying to reach people who are completely unchurched and disinterested and have had no Christian exposure whatsoever and they've never stepped foot in a church and they they wouldn't want to. Yeah. So when you're starting at minus 20-odd on the angle scale, however far down it is, with people um, who are, are very secular, it takes a longer time to build up relationship and trust. What I would say is the climate has completely changed so that whereas now, whereas when I first started 18 years ago with Redeeming Our Communities, uh, we had faith had to be very sensitively presented. Mm -hmm. I'd say now it can be much more explicitly presented because we built the trust, we've built the relationships and they... They are at the end of the day. They are interested in the effects of what we're saying. Yeah. So I mean, that's really encouraging that people are more open. I'd find that as well in terms of being on the streets, just sharing with people. Um, it's 2014. You get this incredible, uh, miraculous provision of megabucks. What was it? Five million pounds sent. Go on, tell us about that. Yeah. So we. We were um, sharing offices. Um, Andy Hawthorne from the Message Trust kindly gave us a free office because um, we'd been working with them on Festival Manchester and things like that. And so we'd been with them for a number of years. And he said to me, oh, you, you've outgrown this office and I haven't really got any other space I can give you. Do, do you think it's time that you found your own place? Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, wasn't, he wasn't evicting me, but it's giving me a bit of a prayer challenge. Yeah. And we started to pray and um, very much felt that God was saying prophetically that he was going to give us a place many times bigger than we thought we needed and the miraculous provision would come in for us to be able to um, secure this particular place. So we just went off on a faith journey, driving around Manchester, praying, um, looking around different places. And it came to my attention that there was a building in Trafford. It had been built in 2011 by the national government as a way of providing state-of-the-art conference and and community facilities in deprived areas. And it's a place called Partington. So I drove down to Partington. I'd never been there before. I hadn't seen this particular building. It's massive, big, black, glass-fronted building, a bit like the size of a small school. Mm-hmm. And next door to a school as well. So it was quite you know, well-placed, and it had been built in 2011, five million pounds building, a fantastic facility, and it had gone into liquidation in 2013. So I was asked to go and see it by national government, and and basically the short story is after six months, we were offered it on a 22-year rent-free lease. Wow. So we got basically a, a glass-fronted 
big black box, which is 300 seats of theatre. It's got a massive atrium, fully, you know, fitted catering kitchen. It's got a recording studio, which I'm sitting in now. It's got a live room. It's got a dance studio. It's got a downstairs sports hall. It's got an outside 3G pitch, basketball courts. uh, Yeah, I mentioned the dance studio. Absolutely incredible place. It was many times bigger than we thought we needed, but we felt like it was going to be a bit like getting the OBE for opening up doors with with people to be able to take things to a new level in terms of our influence. The building as well was a little bit like that. We could then hold our own conferences. We could do, you know, cinema clubs for the community. We could We've done fashion shows. We've done boxing. At the moment, we've got Salford City Football Club in here, under-18s training. So we're getting, talk about relationships. We've got relationships with thousands of people who use this building. I've got this uh, cheesy grin of vicarious joy, just loving it. What an unbelievable blessing. (laughs) Wonderful. Um, Listen, uh, because of time, there's one particular story I'm I'm interested in, in um, moving mountain prayer. Well, (laughs) you know, you've you've been passionate about praying for cities. You see massive, big level breakthroughs, but have you ever had to battle in in prayer in in your personal life? Yes, definitely. Many, many times. And one in particular, which I share in, in my book, Mount um, Moving Prayer, is about my son, Josh. I've got four children, two girls, two boys. My eldest son, Josh, obviously brought up in a Christian home, pastor's kid, myself and my husband leading church in Manchester, leading the prayer network, leading Redeeming Our Communities. And when he was about 17 he just had a complete personality change is what it felt like to us he became quite surly he got in with he he dropped out of school he started working in a call center he wouldn't communicate with us at home very moody um sort of bordering on anger or angry all the time mixing with a wrong group of people who were having a bad influence on his life heavy drinking and one day the police came to our house to arrest our son. Mm. And I often say as a bit of fun, they weren't coming to see me about redeeming our communities <laughs> because actually, you know, here's me saying I'm reducing crime and my own son has now committed a crime. Mm. So they arrested him, took him to a police station um, in Longside. I didn't actually know where they'd taken him. They wouldn't really tell me much information at the time. They just carted him off for the weekend. Uh, I didn't really know what was going on. I was just in a state, couldn't, couldn't get hold of Frank on the phone. My daughter came round, who's um, a Christian, a lovely Christian girl, strong faith at the time, still now, and worship leader. And she said to Mum, why, why are you despairing? You should be praying. Huh. I was like, you cheeky madam, telling your mother... <laughs> All the stuff that I've taught you, you're now throwing it back at me. Yeah, come on. No, you you should be praying, Mum. You should be, and worship's a weapon. So I think we should start worshipping God. And it was just such a battle between the flesh and the spirit when you have those kind of things. Um, Because I was quite upset that this had happened, really, and why God allowed this to happen. (laughs) 
And anyway, we started to worship, we started to pray, we're looking at our journals of prophetic words that we'd had for Josh when he was younger, when he was dedicated, you know, the fact that we always felt that he was going to become an evangelist and where had all this gone, how the enemy was really contesting. And we sort of went into battle. Um, basically, I, I felt it was almost like as we were praying, as we were worshipping, we got more authority to say to the enemy, you are not having our son. Mm. You know, you're not having him. He's, he's, he's set apart for God. You're not, you're not going to interfere in this way. And we have more authority to speak. Anyway, the short story is at the same time we are praying this prayer and, and worshipping, singing over Josh, he has a major encounter in the police cell. Wow. And he gets on his knees and realizes he's messed his life up and says to the Lord, if you give me another chance, I want to serve you for the rest of my days and tell other young people about you. Mm. Had this awesome encounter with the Lord in the police cell, comes back home on the Monday because he basically went to court because it was his first offence. He got a conditional discharge but had to wear one of those tags mm -hmm. Which, which was very interesting. But he came home on, the, on that Monday morning. I'm in the hallway. He comes through the door, throws himself down on the, on the kind of carpet on the floor and says to me, Mum, please, will you forgive me? I've just messed up. Mm. I said, of course, I'll forgive you. You're our son. I'll forgive you anything. And he said, oh, that's... Yeah, he kept, kept repeating, please, will you forgive me? Please, will you forgive me? Anyway... I just looked at him and I thought, I've got my son back here. Yeah. The, mood, the moody guy that went away on that Friday is different to this boy that I'm looking at now. And I said to him, so Josh, what happened? And he told me about this encounter he'd had in the police cell. And then he said to me, Mum, thanks for coming to sing. And, and I could hear your voice worshipping outside the cell where I was. Thanks for that 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 helped me to know that God had answered my prayer. Wow. And I said, no, I said, we, we didn't come and sing. We didn't even know where you were. Goosebumps. And he said it. And he said, and I said, right, I know what's happened here. So five miles from our house in Sale yeah. to the police station in Longsight, as Sarah and I are worshipping, Holy Spirit is communicating that to, to Josh and yeah. he can actually hear our voices. And I was, wow. Yeah. So even as parents, and this might encourage you, yeah, Simon, it does. you don't know quite what you're going through, but you cannot be with your kids 24-7, but God is, yeah. the Holy Spirit is. And I shared that story thousands with thousands and thousands of parents, grandparents, and seen absolute heartbreak with what many Christian families are going through yeah. um, with their kids. And the Lord is bringing them back to himself. And we, we have to pray. We have to battle in prayer. Um, and it could take longer than we're hoping it to take, but God is... 100% know that God is with them, mm. that experience. And now he's the national director of 24-7 youth, for, for the youth director of 24-7 prayer. <laughs> oh, 
come rattling on. All, all over the country oh. uh, talking to young people about prayer and of course he is an evangelist yeah. he worked with the you know prior to that with the message trust going around doing these big concerts preaching the gospel to young people so that is incredible yeah Oh, well, listen, I've got my hands in the air. I'm celebrating. <laughs> That's just a <laughs> uh, great thing to finish on. And uh, wh- if people want to be in touch with you or what do you, uh, website, anything you want to say? Yes, please. Um, rock, which is R-O-C, which is short for Redeeming Our Communities. So our website is rock.uk.com. And we've got our, my books are in our website shop with some other res- prayer resources that we've got there. We're doing a conference in Staffordshire in November called Go Deeper, where we're gathering people, helping people to see how the prayer and prophetic links up with with, um, societal transformation. Uh, So, yeah, please come get get onto the website and you can contact us from there. And we'd love to come and visit your town, your city and help you in any way we can. Brilliant. Oh, Deborah Green, beautiful lady. Thank you so much for being with us. Brilliant. Thank oh. you, everyone. Bye. Bless you. Oh, guys, I, I, I knew it was going to be a good one and it has been a good one. If you've enjoyed it, can you share it with your mates, gossip it along and uh, give us a great review, hopefully on Spotify, iTunes, so that more people get to see it through the whatever the algorithm, however that works. I don't really understand that. Uh, if you want to be in touch with me, simongilbert.com or any of the social media platforms but uh, in the meantime have a great week I want to thank Adam Thomas Steer for the editing and uh, Mike Sandman for the mixing and we'll see you next time for another fantastic guest in the meantime God bless you and toodaloo